Well, great. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull that out. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, we have a couple placed down on each end of the rows. Go ahead and grab one of those. And when you have a Bible in your lap, what you're going to need to do is open it up to the table of contents because we are in the smallest book of the Old Testament today, okay? It's only got 21 verses, so open up to the table of contents. Find the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is where we're going to be working from today, and when you find the page number, meet me there. Meet me there. And for those of you who may be new or visiting, we are in a, uh, a teaching series right now that we're doing on Sunday mornings that we have entitled Minor Prophets, Major Gospel. Minor Prophets, Major Gospel gospel. Um, the minor prophets are just the 12 books of the Bible that are um, in the back end of the Old Testament. They're, they're called minor prophets uh, because they're just shorter than some other prophetic literature in the Old Testament. There's some long books of, of, of prophetic literature and there's some short ones. And these are the short ones. And so each week we're taking a different short work of a, of, of a prophet, these last 12 books in the Old Testament, and we're unpacking what it has to say to us. Um, and we, we, so those are the minor prophets. The other part of this is the major gospel piece. And we're, we've called it this because Jesus, after he died on the cross, was buried, and he rose again, um, he was talking to his disciples before he went back to heaven to be with the Father, and he told them, he said, look in the prophets because these are written about me. These prophets are written about me. Even though these prophets were written 500 to 700, 800 years before Jesus showed up on the scene, Jesus said, you see these? These are written all about me. And so his followers actually went into these works. They, they wrestled with them. They read them, and they, they realized, oh my goodness, these are all about Jesus. And through their writings in the New Testament, you see them point back to the minor prophets time and time and time again. And so that's what we're doing here. We're actually just looking for the major gospel truths of Jesus in these old, small, minor prophet books. That, that, that's what we're up to on our, our Sunday series. Um, this is week four. And in the previous three weeks, what we found is that these minor prophets love the topic of justice. Love it. They're talking about justice all the time. They're talking about injustice all the time. They're talking about justice, and Obadiah is the same way. In fact, the rest of these nine books all wrestle with this big theme of justice. And Dave and I, went, when we were planning out the sermon series for this year, for 2019, back in the fall, I, we didn't fully realize why the minor prophets uh, kept on being put on our hearts to lead the congregation through over the, over the course of the first 12 weeks of this year. But, but as we get further and further into 2019, we, we feel and see more and more of a need to be firmly grounded in the true justice of God, the, the historic, timeless nature of justice that God and Jesus have for us in his gospel message. And so, I mean, we fully realize and see, and there's a whole lot that our society is going through right now with regards to justice. We fully recognize that. We fully recognize the fact that people who are coming in here, that your hearts are probably going through a lot right now with regards to justice. And we think that God has brought us into this season together collectively to give us a grounded nature for what his timeless justice is, okay? 
Um, and, and so as we get into Obadiah today, this could feel a little bit intense at points. And, and I'm not going to apologize for that, but I just want you to, to be able to stick through it because there is a beautiful gospel truth that's present here. When we grasp these um, abstract notions of, of justice that are rooted in God himself, we find meaningful ways for how to live in a society that's grappling with injustice. Because okay? our, our society is grappling with injustice on, on so many levels, on so many fronts. We can all just, uh, just take a cursory glance and we see the various movements that are happening. We see the various marches that are taking place. And, and these movements and these marches are bumping into one another, aren't they? They're coming into contact with one another. The events over the past week have particularly highlighted that. They're coming into contact and even conflict with one another. Right now, our culture is aggressively grabbing for justice. It's confusedly grabbing for justice. Sometimes it's blindly grabbing for justice, as evidenced in our Twitter battles, our, our, our media battles, our, even our, our commercial battles. I've entered into the justice zone right now, and there's a lot going on with regards to this. We're a culture that's very interested in justice, aren't we? We're very interested injustice. And, and for some of us, we, we, we may have the tendency to think that our awareness for justice is growing, that we're becoming a, a more and more aware nation of what injustices are and, and making strides towards them. But if you ask anybody who has a greater perspective, meaning anybody who's old, what they think about our recent foray into matters of justice, they'll tell you this, and I did it this week. They said, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. In the 90s, they'll remind you in the 90s, the race riots of the 90s. They'll remind you of the Million Man March in 1995, the Million Woman March in 1997. They'll point to the 1980s and how the nuclear non-proliferation movement just exploded They'll remind you of the Black Panther movement of the 70s. They'll point to the, the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s. And of course, they'll remind you of the civil rights movement of the 50s and the 60s. Ours is a culture and a society that's always been bent towards righting injustice. The question is why? Why? Because there's, there's plenty of cultures around the world that don't press into injustices as much as our culture does. And, and on the one hand, we can argue that's because they have oppressive rulers over them that aren't letting them do this. But on the other hand, cultures that are, are largely individualistic have this as their byproduct. Highly individualistic cultures have a special focus and obsession towards injustice. Why? Because injustices infringe and confront our notion that we hold most dearly. It's, it's the sacred holy grail. They bump up against individual human rights. And, and so it, it, highly individualistic cultures, when they see individual human rights being um, pushed on and, and transgressed, they lift up their voices to speak to them. This is just part of what it means to live in a highly individualistic culture. Does that diminish our efforts towards striving for justice? Absolutely not. But it does explain our intense focus upon it. Okay? 
This is part of our individualism. And, and for the first three weeks, we, we focused on uh, these first three minor prophets, which focused on injustices that Israel itself was perpetrating within its communities and towards the outsiders. Israel was, was uh, taking large, uh, large injustices towards itself, and we took three weeks to go over those, and Dave did a great job at unearthing those and the ramifications of them. But this week, the... I guess the whole focus shifts. It changes when you hit Obadiah. Obadiah isn't concerned about the injustices that Israel has committed. Obadiah is concerned about the injustices that Israel is experiencing, the injustices that Israel is witnessing out in the world. That's what Obadiah is doing. And in that way, if we let Obadiah speak to us, he can give us some handles for how to engage in justice, both when we experience it and how we can step towards and make positive contributions towards mending the injustices that we see in our greater society. That's what Obadiah is all about, and, and that's what really he's trying to help us with today, okay? Uh, Obadiah is, is really based on, uh, it's the only book in all scripture that's like this. It's writing about another country. It's writing about another country called Edom, and Edom oppressed Israel at a significant point in history, and it's writing to that event, okay? They oppressed the people of God. Um, does anybody here know what the Good Shepherd Center is? Hands, anybody? Couple, couple. The Good Shepherd Center is just about 10 or 12 blocks from here um, in Wallingford, up the hill a little bit, the Good Shepherd Center, and it was actually built in 1907. Little history lesson about Good Shepherd Center. Didn't think you get that, did you? Built in 1907 by the Catholic Church, it was built to house wayward girls of Seattle, which is actually just a, another way of saying women who are trying to come out of prostitution, because our city has a deep and dark history of prostitution here in Seattle. In fact, if you go to the history books, take the tours, it's everywhere, rampant. So much so that the Catholics built this huge uh, complex up the hill here that could house a hundred, at least uh, 100 of these wayward girls or prostitutes that were trying to come out of the sex trade. Okay, and it's beautiful. It's this huge complex, and they built inside of it this huge, gorgeous chapel. And we thought, hey, we would love to, to, to have a worship and prayer night in that chapel. It would be amazing. You walk into it, and aesthetically, it just takes your breath away. Acoustically, I'm sure it's marvelous. The Catholics were great at creating environments like that, you know. And uh, the, the city of Seattle owns it now. And so we started, uh, we reached out to host an event in there, because I host events in there several times a week. And uh, we were getting things going, picking a date with one of the coordinators until one of the upper-ups figured out what was going on, sniffed it out. And he told the coordinator in an email that he, the coordinator forwarded to us, which he probably shouldn't have done, that this is a group that's trying to, to practice acts of faith, and they can't do that here. You're going to have to deny them their request to use the chapel and the Good Shepherd Center. Even though if you look at their event calendar, there's a host of other spiritualities that use the event center throughout the week to promote, to, to promote those spiritualities, you know? I mean, that's an injustice of sorts, right? Now, that's not an injustice on the scale that African-Americans have experienced over the course of history, but it's an unjust act. And really what it speaks to is we live in a society that's less, and less Christian than it's ever been before. We're in a post-Christian culture, is what that's called, where Christians are a minority. You guys sitting here are a minority in this city. Less than 5% of our city actually goes to church on a Sunday. Okay, so you guys are a minority in a certain sense. And, uh, and so we should expect to experience more and more things like this as we go forward. 
But what's more interesting to talk about is, is the subtle and systemic oppression that Christians experience in a post-Christian society in a city like Seattle or Manhattan's or kind of the cultural centers of our country. Okay, now, now I know that these pale in comparison to other injustices that have taken place in our society. I, I know that. But the simple reality is that if you're a Christian, you probably don't feel comfortable talking in your workplace about Jesus, Right? I mean, you probably don't feel great about talking about Jesus in any public setting. Actually, I'm a pastor, and so I meet with people for coffee out in uh, the, the neighborhood a lot, out in public a lot, and we'll be catching up around topics such as, what, what are you up to? What have you been doing? How have you been? And then the, the conversation will change towards matters of Jesus, and the decibel volume of the conversation drops. What does that allude to? Well, it alludes to fear, right? It alludes to fear. It alludes to the fact that there is a subtle oppression that takes place in our culture towards people of faith. And I think on, on some level, we're scared that if we were truly to voice who we are as disciples of Jesus, that we would be squashed like the Good, like the good Shepherd Center did. Very minor squashing. We, we can take that squashing. The, the people who experience the most squashing are, are street signs on a week-to-week basis, you know? Those experience lots of squashing. But that's okay, they can take it, you know? But it hints at this subtle oppression that Christians experience. And actually, this is how all minority groups experience injustice. We can take any example of a minority group experiencing injustice, and it works the same way. Take racial injustice, for example. Um, African Americans, now I know that, our, that the plight of Christianity is not as significant as the plight of African American racial injustice, which has been taking place for hundreds and hundreds of years, okay, and much greater extent. But African Americans, um, usually uh, these uh, movements of justice come out of an event, an instance, like the Good Shepherd Center did to us, the shooting of an African American by a police officer. Usually this sparks something, sparks a movement right? But what you find out if you really listen to what the movement's saying, and if you listen to Dave's uh, sermon last week, the petition was, hey, we need to look for the, joy, the voices that are crying out for, for justice in our culture and actually listen to them. And so I was doing that this week, and I was listening to, to African Americans talk about racial injustice after these events where police officers have killed young black men, usually, and, and what you hear is remarkable. They're not primarily talking about the event that took place. When you really listen, when you really perk up and listen to what they're saying, they're talking and they're speaking to this, the systemic, subtle oppression that causes African Americans to live in existential fear every day. Okay, so, so there's, there's these two parts of oppression that people groups can experience. And, and Christians experience the same subtle oppression in a, a society like Seattle, okay? All right. <clears throat> now, Obadiah is going to help us here, okay? He's going he's to help us figure it out. He's going to give us these greater um, notions of justice and the gospel. And when we truly figure these out, when we truly hear what he has to say regarding these things, then we have the opportunity to react and respond to justice in helpful ways, something that we largely, I would argue, don't see happening very much in our culture or society at large. The gospel actually empowers the greatest and most useful way to respond to perceived and witnessed injustice, which is why the gospel has actually always been very readily accepted by oppressed minority groups as well. It's very interesting, okay? So there, there's some tools here that I hope that we can find together, okay? 
All right, so let's get into it. Um, it's about Israel and Edom. Particularly, it's about an injustice that Israel experienced at the hands of Edom um, about, well, really when Israel was on its final, um, it was receiving its final blow that knocked Israel out around 600 BC, okay? But let me give you kind of a SparkNotes version of their relationship so that we can understand exactly what's going on here, okay? Okay, so Israel and Edom are two nations that came from two families that came from a set of twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau are the twin sons of Isaac, okay? Jacob and Esau. Um, Jacob was a deceiver. In fact, that's what his name actually means. And uh, he actually deceived his brother Esau out of his inheritance. So he took what Esau would get when his father died, and he deceived him out of it. And what's worse, uh, the, the firstborn, Esau was born a couple minutes before Jacob, the firstborn would get like a, a blessing from their father before their father died. Uh, Jacob's like, yeah, I'm going to weasel my way to get that as well. So he took all of his stuff, and then he couldn't even let him have the consolation prize of a blessing, and he stole that too, okay? Um, I mean, in my house, when one of my daughters takes a single toy from the other one, it, it just erupts, you know? Like, there's, there's rage, intense rage that happens in my house. A single toy or a single book, you know? So Esau wants to kill Jacob. Jacob catches wind of this, runs away. Jacob runs away. He starts a family and has 12 sons, and from these 12 sons would come the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob is later renamed Israel by God. Okay, But it's over the course of the next thousand years that these two brothers are going to replay, uh, the, the, the nations that come from these two brothers are going to replay this tit-for-tat relationship that they uh, participated in. So, for example, when Israel comes out of Egypt to go to the Promised Land, the nation of Edom at that point says, sorry, you can't pass through us to get to the Promised Land. You have to walk around with a million women and children in the desert in order to get there. Okay? Confronts them with an entire army, saying, if you try this, we're going to kill you. Okay? Retributively, David, when he becomes king, he makes Edom a vassal state of Israel. Okay? So, so Edom's just waiting for the chance to, to, to knock Israel down a little bit. And it finally finds its chance on the day of the Lord for Israel. What is this? We've been talking about the day of the Lord a little bit over the past three weeks for Israel in particular. This was the time when God was going to pour out his justice on Israel for all the previous injustices that Israel had committed, okay? And so Israel is finally experiencing this day of the Lord, and then an event happens perpetrated by the Edomites that Obadiah is taking issue with, okay? This is what happens, Okay, Babylon has invaded uh, Judah. They've surrounded the capital city of Jerusalem. The king is stuck in there. His army is stuck in there. Edom realizes something. Edom's on the southwest border of Israel, and they realize this. Israel's vulnerable. They can't protect their countryside. So Edom goes up into the cities, the towns, and villages of Israel and ransacks them, takes all of the loot, and takes the people as slaves Without a doubt, there is lots of bloodshed. Huge injustice was committed then, and they take their territory as well. Huge injustice. It was such a big one that we actually see several um, writers in the Old Testament writing about this specific injustice that took place in Ezekiel and in the Psalms as well. It was a huge deal. And it's actually outlined for us what they did here, starting in verse 10. This is the first day of the Lord that Obadiah is talking about when God is judging Israel, okay? 
Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. This is speaking to Edom, to Esau's race. And you shall be cut off forever on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives or hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So Israel was experiencing their day, and Edom used it as an opportunity to get rich. Okay, that's the injustice that happened here. That's the injustice that took play. And, and this is what Obadiah is saying in his work. He's saying, hold up, God is just, and he doesn't let anything go. He doesn't let anything go. And so Edom, he saw a vision that a day, just like it came on Israel, was going to come on Edom a second day of the Lord. And that's the day he actually starts with. Look, look at verse one. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been set among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. Okay, so here we have God's justice coming to Edom based on the injustice that they had perpetrated towards another nation. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, and in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And, and if you skip down here, Verse 8, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty man shall be dismayed, O Temen, that was the capital, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So Obadiah is speaking to a time when God's justice will repay Edom for the injustice that they have, have done in the world. And we see this imagery of, of a proud Edom that's lifting itself up, that, that is, is, thinks it's really great. This imagery of the, their, their cities were actually in the rocks, is, and the imagery is that they're also proud oppressors, just like, they're, just like where they live. They're proud oppressors, and Obadiah says they're going to come to a ruin. And that kind of makes us feel good, right? Like, we hope they do. They took away women and children and murdered women and children that were vulnerable and defenseless in the countryside. We, there's a part of us that hopes that this um, proud oppressor comes and meets their end. Who's another proud oppressor that you think of? What do you hope happens to them? You see, this, this, is, this is human nature, we see the proud oppressor in our midst, in our culture, in our society, and our hope is that something or someone will topple them off their throne. This is the Obadiah's hope here, then this is what God said he would do. And this is the desire in, in, inside of each and every one of our hearts that proud oppressors will meet their end. Why? Why do we have this desire within us to see proud oppressors met with justice? Why do we hope that they fall? 
Well, secular culture actually struggles to answer this question. And we have to be careful that we don't fall into the secular ditch regarding justice. Later, we're going to speak to a religious ditch. We're uh, talking about justice, but right now, let's focus on the secular one. Um, What I mean by secular culture is the parts of our society that try to understand how the world works without God. Okay, the, the point of view that, that argues that humans are here by accident and evolution, that you and I were the product of survival of the fit and strong, you see, that worldview actually can't substantiate or explain a human desire for justice. In, in fact, human rights and justice and survival of the strong and fit, are, they, they run on two train tracks that actually can't ever come and meet together. You see, if we're merely the product of evolution, the strong eating the weak, on what basis can we object to strong nations oppressing weaker nations? On what basis can we object to stronger people oppressing marginalized people? You see, there's there's a disconnect there. Uh, Why do we have special moral antennas perked up to perceive injustice at all? And moreover, this is even more confusing. Why do we have so many examples of strong humans sacrificing themselves to right the injustice that weaker ones experience? Something doesn't add up here. And when you actually look at the new atheist attempts at addressing these questions, it's extremely dissatisfying. You read through the literature, and Richard Dawkins, he has several evolutionary principles that he tries to argue for, but it's largely hand-waving, grossly speculative. Uh, Sam Harris, another new atheist, you know, his is, it really comes with the baggage of determinism, meaning that, that you actually don't have a choice in the matter, um, that humans are just a product of their brain synapses firing however they were chemically firing that day, that your desire for justice is just there because, well, that's what your brain decided to do that day. I mean, come on, that doesn't feel intuitive for how humanity really works, right? With the Christian view of justice, it states that our notion for justice is grounded in our creator. It says we seek justice because we're created in the image of God, who hates evil and is himself the judge of humanity. It says we naturally seek out morality and values and have consciences because we intrinsically know that one day everything will be judged. This is really where our notion for, just, for justice comes from. You see, justice itself and our desire for it makes far more sense in a world made by God than in a world that's not made by God. We all want justice. We all want it. Deep down, we hope there's an ultimate judge, even if we kind of take a different spiritual route and call it karma, okay? Deep down, we hope there's always that there's a judge. We recognize that if there's no ultimate judge, then there's no ultimate hope for humanity, And if we fall into the secular ditch, we lose that hope, okay? All right. But Obadiah is ready to broaden his scope to the whole world here when he talks about this third day of the Lord. And that starts in verse 15, okay? It goes like this. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. 
This kind of gets to the point here. This is the third day that we come to. There's just this triple barrel shotgun that's going off. One hits Israel. Day two hits Edom. And then Obadiah makes it clear that day three is for the rest of humanity. Now, maybe your friend brought you to church here. Maybe this is your first time here. And you're like, churches always do this. They lure you in by saying that God loves you, that you're an oppressed, you're an oppressed person, that God loves you, wants to take care of you. And then they will just want to talk about your sin and how you're, you're due for justice. Churches always do this. And in some sense, you're correct. Churches do always do that. Um, but, that, but Obadiah is doing something really clever here because he's giving us a broad notion of the entire uh, realms, all the realms that justice touches. And it's not just stuff out there. It's stuff in here as well. And, and so what's really clever, how Obadiah does it is really clever. You can't see it in the English. But in, in the Hebrew, Edom is spelled the same way that humanity is. Edom, Edom, is spelled the same way that the word for humanity is, Adam. And in Hebrew, actually, there's not vowels in, in the text at all. If, if you're a, a true Hebrew, you can just read the consonants. And these words have the same three consonants. And so it's meant to jump out at you and slap you in the face. That Edom, its pride and its pending fall, is a parable for the pride and pending fall of all of humanity. This is what Obadiah is doing here. Okay, this is the final day of the Lord that Obadiah is referencing. And so here what we find is that we're in a justice conundrum together. We're all in a justice conundrum. On the one hand, there is no hope for the world unless there's an ultimate judge. And on the other hand, if there is an ultimate judge, there's no hope for you and there's no hope for me. This is the justice conundrum that Obadiah brings us into here. We want justice. We want the ultimate judge to shine light on injustice and deal with it as we identify it. But then what that ultimate judge eventually will do is shine the light on us and it becomes very clear very quickly that we're not blameless, that all of us have participated in injustice. Some of it we don't even realize that we're doing it. Some of it we do. We've all cheated to get ahead. We've all told a little white lie to take advantage of somebody else that's needed a bigger lie. We've all stolen. I mean, in some sense, all of us are oppressors on some level. Maybe you, maybe you would say, well, well, sure, but those actions pale in comparison to the greater actions of injustice that we witness in the world. And I would say, yeah, you're probably right. The unjust actions that, that you've done, the, the ramifications of them are probably much less than the greater ramifications of the unjust actions that we see uh, happening in the, in the big unjust things that we see in the world. That's probably true. But where would you draw the line? Because this is a, continu a continuum. If we're talking about the effects of unjust actions, the ramifications are a continuum from little to big. Where would you draw the line? This is the religious ditch. The religious ditch looks at the injustice of others to try to justify the self. It can be done by Christians. It can be done by non-Christians. Everybody does it usually on some level. There's a religious ditch that we can fall into that says, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. And, we, and Jesus actually told a, a parable about this. It goes like this. <clears throat> Do we have it? It's Luke 18. Yeah. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray. This is Jesus talking. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This tax collector would have been responsible for the injustices done by the Romans on the Israelites. I tell you, this is Jesus' assessment of the situation, I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see that? We read that story and we side with Jesus' judgment against the religious ditch. That's what we do. We, we, all, we all see that, sure, this person, this other guy may have actually done more injustice, but he's humble. He's repentant about it. See, there are many who fall into this religious ditch. We, we, we're so prone to do it as humans. We're prone to compare ourselves to others and just say, comparatively, I'm doing great. So we're in this conundrum. There's no hope for the world unless there's an ultimate judge rejecting the secular ditch. And if there is an ultimate judge, there's no hope for you and me rejecting the religious ditch. So what do we do? Well, this is where Obadiah places his major gospel message. Okay, it's, it's in verse 17. Look at it with me. He says, but in Mount Zion, Mount Zion is a reference to the kingdom of God. It always is throughout all of these prophets. In Mount Zion, in the full kingdom of God, it also is referred to as Jerusalem. In the full kingdom of God, where he fully reigns and everything is perfect, there shall be those who escape. There shall be those who escape. Well, what are they escaping? Well, they're escaping this third day of the Lord that Obadiah is talking about here. That third barrel of the shotgun goes off, and like Neo in the Matrix, I risk dating myself there, they dodge it. They escape. Well, how exactly did they escape? That's our question, right? Well, how, how the heck did they escape this justice conundrum? How did that actually happen? And in order to understand that, we actually have to look at the prophet Joel, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, the prophet Joel was written a couple hundred years before Obadiah wrote, and um, he actually ties the how directly to uh, his, his version of it. It deals directly with escaping in the day of the Lord, the same day of the Lord, same escape from Joel 2. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors there shall be home, those whom the Lord calls. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall escape. Calls on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? What is that? That's kind of vague, isn't it? That's a pretty vague statement. Calls on the name of the Lord. But this is actually uh, what we see Jesus flesh out when he shows up on the scene. And you can find this in Mark chapter 1. When Jesus shows up on the scene, he's doing three years of ministry, calling people to believe in the coming kingdom of God. And his stump speech goes kind of like this. The kingdom of God is at hand. Mount Zion, Jerusalem is coming. It's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel to get ready. Repent and believe the gospel so you can escape. Repent and believe the gospel is what calling on the name of the Lord looks like lived out day in and day out. Well, what does that mean, repent and believe the gospel? What does that actually mean? Well, re 
Repenting is twofold. On, on the one hand, repenting is to acknowledge that we're living pridefully for ourselves, that humans left in the, to their own will pridefully live for themselves and their gains in the world. Acknowledge that reality and acknowledge that that is actually the cause, the root cause of injustice. The injustice that we commit, that all people commit. People living for themselves. Acknowledge that. That's the first part of repentance. The second part of that is to uh, turn around and say, you know, I'm going to live for God and his kingdom instead then. Repentance. Acknowledging our tendencies towards pride to live for ourself and our commitment to live for God. So that's repenting. Believing the gospel. What does that actually mean? Well, believing the gospel is actually um, putting faith and trusting in the fact that Jesus took care of this third day of the Lord for you. That when he was on the cross, the, the justice of God that was meant for those who put their faith in Jesus was actually poured onto Jesus. That's what believing the gospel means, that Jesus made a way to take that third shotgun shell for you, for me. That's what Jesus did on the cross, okay? Believing the gospel looks to Jesus as the one who did that and then agreeing to live our lives in accordance with how he hopes we might live as a result, okay? Another important question, one more important question. When is this day coming? That's a very relevant question, right? When is it coming? Well, the day of the Lord is coming. It's actually happening right now. It started when Jesus was on the cross. There we see God's justice being poured out on an unjust humanity through their union with Christ. Jesus takes care of our sin there. But then it also is even still being revealed right now. Paul in Romans chapter one says, the wrath of God is being revealed against all humanity. That's a crazy thing to say. Usually we say after the cross that the love of God is being revealed through Jesus, all humanity. And Paul says that right before he says this. And then he says, the wrath of God is also being revealed. Well, how is that happening? Well, it, it's happening, uh, if you read his subsequent sentences, through him, uh, through God handing prideful people over to their lusts and to their desires and letting the consequences of, this, of their sin fall back upon them. That, that's how it's happening. So it, it happened at Jesus, and it's kind of happening now. And then at the end of time, when Jesus comes back again, there will be another huge event of God's justice where Jesus will turn it up to 11 and all who have put their faith in him will remain and everybody else will be like Edom. Who's had an Edomite sandwich? The culture of Edom was altogether done away with. After this day of the Lord, it came a couple hundred years after Israel's. Okay? So that's really how we understand what's going on here with the day of the Lord on the third day and how we can escape it. Okay, so those are all of the big abstract things. <laughs> We've talked abstractly about justice, the secular ditch, the religious ditch. We've talked abstractly about the gospel, escaping the third day of the Lord, repenting, believing the gospel when that day is. Now we get to talk about how does this empower us to actually address injustice? How does that work? And the key is in a word that Obadiah repeats over and over in the end of his letter. It's not a letter, it's, it's, it's a book, sorry. Um, pick it up in verse 17. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Skip over to verse 19. Those of the Negeb, that's Israel, shall possess Mount Esau. And those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin, that's another word for Israel, shall possess Gilead. 
The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Possession. Possess, possess, possess. Eight times. It's a big clue when you're reading the Old Testament. Whenever the Hebrew writers use the word over and over again, they're trying to say, listen up. This is what I'm actually talking about here. Now, now the, the secular world thinks of possession, uh, that possession of the world comes by strength and power, by ability, by self-assuredness, by aggression, by might. This is the picture of Edom. This is the picture of humanity. The more you assert yourself, the more you organize yourself, the more you manifest your own power in, in the world, your own abilities, the more, express, the more you express yourself, the more likely you're going to be to succeed, the more likely you are to take a hold of whatever you really want in this life, money, sex, image, power, fame. But, but do you know what? This actually forces humanity into more injustice. You may even think that you're not that bad now, but you're, if your desire for possessing these things continues over the course of your life, you'll, you'll without a doubt, become a more and more unjust person. I, I absolutely guarantee it. And, and you may get ahead for a while, yes, but the day of the Lord is now. Jesus could come back at any time. Eventually, it'll fall back on yourself or Jesus himself will show up but not for those who call on the name of the Lord, not for those who repent and believe the gospel. And how did these, these escapees come to possess the world? Well, Jesus connecting, connected repenting and believing to a very interesting quality that he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. This is probably the most famous part of Scripture. It's a little dark, uh, but it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Inherit or possess the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, this is a term that we don't really use anymore today. When was the last time you heard someone talk about meekness? When was the last time you used the word meek? So we have to define it. And what I do want to tell you, uh, by the first thing I want to say is that meekness does not mean weakness. It doesn't mean just someone who's a pushover. It doesn't mean someone who just goes along with anything. Jesus isn't referring to an easygoing person here, actually. Meekness and weakness, they're not synonymous terms. In fact, meekness is actually compatible with great, great strength. And we're going to see that here. With great authority, with great power. Well, how is that? Well, it's because the meek view, or the person who has a meek view of themselves has a true view of themselves that forces humility. They have a right attitude towards themselves. And how does that come about? The meek person rightly sees that they are a vile sinner. They see that they're a, a, a sinner that's undeserving of any rights, really, or anyone's positive opinions of them. In fact, any positive thing that comes to the meek person is a surprise and something to rejoice over altogether. <clears throat> And so a meek person doesn't make demands of their rights or their privileges, their, their possessions or their status, but they end up possessing everything, is what Jesus says. And, and that's because when these people exist, when these things are present in the heart of a meek person, something happens that's very counterintuitive. No one can harm you. 
No one can say anything that's all that bad about you. You become unbreakable. Insults that are hurled at you just kind of glance off and they're like, that's nothing compared to who I really am, actually. The, the, the sinner that I actually am. Meek people become unbreakable people. When we see ourselves rightly, we discover that nobody can say anything about us that's actually that, all that bad. Okay? And, and, and do you know what this actually in turn produces? It produces courage about the right things. Courage about the right things tied to humility. Do you see how this humble courage is necessary to pursue justice? You see how this humble courage, I mean, that's what we witnessed in Martin Luther King Jr. We saw a humble courage present in that man. That's why people gravitated toward him. Do you know what's not largely present in our discussions of injustice in society today? A humble courage. Humble courage. Something else uh, comes about for meek people, and that's that they become incredibly, incredibly teachable. When you have a true view that you're just a sinner, you become dependent upon someone else to teach you the right way for how to live, the right way for how society is to be ordered. You look to this as something that can bring you truth and light and life to figure it out. And so, and meek people glean from other meek people, which is beautiful as well. I, I, got to, like, I got to experience that a little bit this week, and it was amazing. And when we look out at the attempts to rectify injustice in, in our world, this meekness, this humble courage, this teachability is remarkably rare. It's just gone whether it be from the right or the left or somewhere else, this is a rare quality of only a few that are grasping for injustice. This is largely why they're ineffective. Why? Well, it's because those are the things, meekness is that which God has chosen to work through. Meekness is that which God has decided to attach his power to to be effective in this world. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. He says, God has chosen the weak things to shame the the strong, the foolish things to shame the wise. He's chosen the things that are not to bring to nothing, the things that are. God sees meekness, and he says, I can use that. I can work through that. We can pursue gospel, gospel truths through that and gospel justice realities through that, not individual ones. This is why at Sedaris we say that we are people that do not take ourselves too seriously. We just take the gospel seriously because we hope that we can be a meek people that God can use to pursue gospel justice in this city and in this country that so desperately needs it. This is the upside-downness of the kingdom of God. It's an incredible attribute that was modeled by, by Jesus, Jesus himself. And, and we can't respond to injustice correctly until we ourselves adopt it as he did. And so we're, we're going to read a little bit about this by way of close, closing. We're just going to behold the meekness of Jesus here that Paul writes about in Philippians 2. Um, and then we're going to sing three songs about Jesus. And, and I hope that as we're singing these songs, we can press into the reality that we we're saved by a meek Savior. And God used that meekness to highly exalt him and make him the most exalted, powerful human that there ever was through the power of God. Okay, so, so press into this reality of, of your meek Savior or this meek Jesus, if you wouldn't let, yet call him your Lord and Savior. 
Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, serving who? He served humanity, being born in the likeness of men. If there's anybody that didn't have to be meek, it was Jesus, because he was not a sinner. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the meekness that we're called to put on as followers of Christ. Please bow your heads with me. <clears throat> Father, right now we, we come to you as a, a people in a culture that's wrestling with injustice. And we need your help. We, we not only need your help to identify um, injustice, we not only need your help to, to listen to the voices that are crying out for justice, God, but we need your help to be people that can actually take meaningful steps to work injustice through the power of your spirit here in this world. So right now, God, I pray that you would empower your people to work contra this world by putting their pride aside, setting our pride aside for the glory of the Father, and for the peace and justice that you want to work in the society. It cannot happen unless it comes through meekness, Lord. So we look to you, dependent upon you, to create this quality within us. Thank you for my friends right here. For those who wouldn't yet call Jesus their, their Lord and Savior, I pray that, that you would work in them now, that they would bring their questions to, to, those, who, um, to those who can answer them, God. We're so glad that you've brought them here to consider your gospel message and pray that that consideration would continue whether they make a decision or not today as to whether it's true or not. Uh, we pray all this in the name of Jesus and by your powerful spirit who unites himself to, we to meekness. Amen.